Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, June 30th, and today Tara Palmieri is here to talk about the impact of abortion on the midterm elections. She's been talking to everyone in D.C., everyone in state capitals, about the political opportunities and pitfalls that await both parties this election year. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Hey guys, it's Peter. I travel all the time, especially in an election year. And as we all know, what luggage you choose matters. Briggs & Riley is my personal favorite because their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they will repair it free of charge. No proof of purchase needed, no questions asked, even if an airline damages your bag. All features were created to address customer pain points for a better travel experience. They're extremely durable with rigorous testing and premium materials to last for life. And one thing I love, they're supremely smooth, shock-absorbing wheels for easy gliding through your travels through whatever airport you're zooming through. And hot off the press, the Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It's new and improved and just launched on BriggsRiley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. It has the new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, and then compress it to its original size. So a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, and that's just one of the new features. It's available in black, navy, and olive. So check out all the Briggs and Riley offerings at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Tara Palmieri in Washington. Are you in New York or Washington, Tara? Um, neither, actually. Ooh, okay. Well, New York right. State. But- New York State. You don't have to say where. Okay. Lo- okay. No locations. Where fine. in the Somewhere- world am I? Think of me as Carmen <laughs> San Diego. Perfect. <laughs> Tara, I want to talk to you about um, a piece you have up. Your piece is DC Insiders Grapple with the Politics of Roe. I feel like everyone in politics is grappling with the politics of Roe. Yeah. But um, the way you organized your piece was interesting. You basically like categorized the various themes that are coming out of your conversations with Democrats, people on the Hill, people in the White House, Republicans, Republicans in the States. Let's dig in on the Democrats first, though. Like, what are the macro takeaways that the Democrats you're talking to have about this in terms of can they do anything to fix it in the short term? How will it impact the midterm elections? And also just like how does some of the language and rhetoric play politically, too? I feel like that's an important piece of this. Yeah, I mean, I think the feeling is that it could help some of these frontline districts, the ones that came through on like the suburban swing in 2018, some of these members who came as like a reaction to Trump, right? That was Tom Malianowski in New Jersey, Mikey Sherrill in New Jersey, Abigail Spanberger in Virginia, uh, Lane Loria. So there's like a group of these people who came through in a reaction to what was seen as like a rightward bent, right? They're vulnerable because they are kind of in these wealthy suburbs where that also tend to be pretty Republican, but they're not evangelical Republicans, right? And so there's a feeling that this might help them because they're vulnerable, but that's only like a pocket of districts, maybe like 10 or 15. So maybe what some Democrats feared could be like, losing by 45 seats could end up being like Uh 30 or even less 20. 
but they don't see this being a huge game changer in terms of like motivation and getting people to vote for abortion rights, essentially over pocketbook issues like the economy. Mm-hmm. So I think the realization is it's not a silver bullet. It's a wild card. It'll help some people. It might staunch the bleeding a little bit. I think one point to make is that four months is a long time in politics, right? Four months ago, Russia invaded Ukraine, hardly top of mind for Americans anymore. Uh, A year ago, Biden had a botched pullout from Afghanistan. Like, I think people like noted that in terms of his competence, but I don't, Mm -hmm. I still don't think like when they're going out to vote, they're voting about Afghanistan. Other thinking is that like, it's kind of an uncomfortable topic for a lot of Democrats anyway. The leftists, they tend to go in an extreme as much as the right is an extreme anti-abortion, the left can also, you know, have their own extremes as well, especially for like white men, Catholics, et cetera. It's not the easiest topic to take on. I mean, they liked it mm-hmm. when the, the messaging was safe, legal and rare, right? Mm-hmm. That was like a safe space for them. But that messaging is sort of gone now. And I think it makes a lot of Democrats feel uncomfortable because they're afraid if they bring that back, you know, they're going to get hit from the left and they're going to get hit from the right. So it's just sort of this shitty situation to be on. The House did vote to codify legalization of abortion, but it doesn't really mm-hmm. matter because it didn't pass in the Senate. And there's just sort of this like reflection period right now where Democrats are realizing Republicans spent about half of a century working on this and Democrats didn't spend that time trying to codify it. I've heard that argument too. I mean, that's certainly a point of view among the young left too. I mean, there was that video that went viral from MSNBC the other day of those two young women outside the court saying like, why should I give you my money to the DNC? Like, you guys haven't done anything. You know, I talked to a former Obama person the other day about this and and this person said, Obama did have 60, he had enough Democrats to like, like break a filibuster and codify abortion rights at one point. But people forget that like Democrats Back then, there were pro-life Democrats. You know, they didn't have 60 votes, actually. I mean, like Arlen Specter was pro-choice on the Republican side, but the 2006 era Democrat, they don't exist really in the party. Mm. This is another thing people forget. Like Tim Kaine was on the ticket with Hillary um, while he was still personally, I'm doing quotation marks to Tara on the Zoom here, like personally (laughs) pro-life, but publicly pro-choice. And he, as governor of Virginia passed legislation that restricted abortion rights. And so, yeah, Democrats have had many years to codify Roe v. Wade, I guess, if you just think about them in terms of today's Democrats who are universally pro-choice. But the party hasn't been like that for 50 years. And that's an important point that's like left out of the conversation, some historical context that, sorry, apologies to the kids, but like you need to understand that. Yeah, no, I think that's smart. Democrats have been flat-footed, by the way, on this, I think, in a lot of ways. Like, they've known for about a month and a half that this ruling was most likely to come down. But, like, I haven't sensed any, like, really strong messaging from that. Yeah, totally. We knew this was happening for a month. You're totally right. The world changed in May when this leaked to Politico. Yeah. It's driving the news for two or three days. Kind of subsides. Comes back a month later. Drives the news for two or three days. But, yeah, like, I don't really know what was happening in the interim. Yes, it would have been nice if Democrats could have codified Roe v. Wade. But, like... The question is, like, they've never had the, like, muscle and the foot soldiers and the grassroots energy around this to match the multi-decade Republican efforts to overturn it. Right. You know, and that's that's what Democrats have been in lacking, especially over the last 10 years. Right. And now that they do have that grassroots effort, a lot of it is, like, burn it down. 
And they're kind of like yeah. hijacking the message and kind of going to extremes, which they're also worried about. And it's like, okay, I think there's a bit of fear in like the operative class um, <laughs> in DC where they're like, we haven't figured out what our messaging is on this. And in the meantime, other people have. And that's like AOC saying, don't donate to the party. They failed you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're terrified yeah. that like this vacuum they've created is being filled with crazies that um, are going to make it even more difficult for them. What is the like squad lefty message that spooks moderate Democrats that they think abortion should be like on demand at all times in all trimesters? I think that's part of it. The whole like blaming the Democratic Party for it, saying don't donate to Democrats, stifling, you know, turnout, creating the impression that like the party doesn't work for them. Like, I think that's part of it. And yeah, I think some of these more extreme views about like late term abortions and even just like the way people are sort of like abortion shaming and stuff like that. I don't know. It's it's getting like a little nasty. But in the meantime, you don't really have any mainstream Democrats with any messaging at all. The White House is like, well, there's not much we can do. I think a lot of it is like, what should we have done? Well, guess what? Like I had a conversation with a congressman. He's pretty progressive. And I was like, well, what are you going to do? Um, and I don't even think they have the answer to that yet. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's not, there's no overnight answer to it. The, the best they can hope for is, I think, in the short term is that this rallies their base voters and, and sort of closes some margins in competitive places. And politics is super homogenized and nationalized at this point. But I have for a lot of Democrats pointing back to the, the 2012 Senate election in Missouri when, when Todd Akin, the Republican nominee, talked about women getting pregnant from, quote, legitimate rape. Yeah. <laughs> and, that totally derailed his campaign against Claire McCaskill. And, you know, Mitt Romney won Missouri by like six or seven points, I think. Like Claire won by 15 points after that. And so, yeah. again, that was a presidential election. Turnout was way higher. But the hope from Democrats is, you know, maybe in, in like discrete competitive races, like using the Claire McCaskill example, that these fights over reproductive rights can rally enough troops against extremists, quote unquote, Republicans and get them over the hump. So like uh, it might be a, a Republican year nationally, but in certain competitive places, you mentioned Pennsylvania earlier, right. like maybe this could help narrow the gap. But stick with me. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about how this might play out for Republicans, including in 2024. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. 
By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back. Uh, Terry, uh, you have also in this piece a little ditty about Republicans, in particular Republicans who might run for president in 2024. Um, <laughs> Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Ron DeSantis in Florida. Right. And uh, Glenn Youngkin in my home state, the Commonwealth of Virginia. You know, will they, now that this is a state by state thing, um, will they pass abortion restrictions as a way to, to appeal to the Republican base? Actually, in the past um, few days, Youngkin has said that he would support a 15 week abortion ban which I believe is also the case right now in Florida, or at least they're debating a 15-week abortion ban. And that's something that Ron DeSantis supports. But like, this is not as extreme as the evangelicals like. They want no abortion in any case. And so it'll be interesting to see if these two Republicans who, I mean, you don't win Florida handily as a Republican. We're Democrat. It's weird, but it's not that dissimilar from Virginia in a lot of ways. So it'll be interesting to see like, especially after DeSantis is reelected, if he ends up going further to the right in hopes of like winning over an evangelical base when he's running for election for president, or does he like try to get a, a Mike Pence or something on his ticket, like an evangelical type on his ticket? Because like right now, they're not going as extreme as evangelicals would like. And it's interesting that they're not getting a lot of backlash for it either. Again, this gets to what we were just saying in the in the first part of this podcast, which is, public opinion on abortion is pretty muddy and more Americans support than oppose a 15-week abortion ban. Like a like a first trimester abortion ban is something that actually has a lot of support out there. And, and a 15-week abortion ban, remember, was like the heart of the Dobbs v. Jackson case that, yeah. that, that led to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And so I think Democrats need to understand a 15-week abortion ban is not seen as draconian by like more Americans than think it is, you know? And that's, right. like, that's an interesting, that's an interesting POV. Which is like also brings me back to some thoughts from moderate Dems of like fantasies, obviously, but like in which they're able to codify abortion, uh, I mean, Roe v. Wade, but in a way that's like a 15 week, you know, like make it legal across the country at 15 weeks and like allow some sort of compromise. I mean, in the same way that like the gun bill was seen as like insufficient, but it was a bipartisan effort to do some sort of regulation. I think this is a pipe dream, don't get me wrong. But it's an interesting idea, to say the least. I mean, I was talking to some, like, Democratic operatives who were saying, like, best case scenario is, like, one of these tight Senate races, somebody sticks their foot in their mouth on the Republican side um, like and says something can, like, right? yeah, yeah, exactly, like legitimate rape and hands mm-hmm. it to like, you know, like Oz says something and Fetterman, it helps Fetterman out or some Republican is outed for their abortion hypocrisy or this or that. Like uh-huh. these are, you know, fantasies, but it happens. It happens all the time. And I think it comes back to the whole idea of like, what are Democrats going to do? And they haven't figured it out yet. The last thing I want to ask you is the last part of your piece, which is something I really appreciated, actually, because Tara wrote the best focus group. This is the last section of her piece um, where you just were up front about where your mom is at on this. And I love, <laughs> I actually love that. Like, I feel like sometimes when I talk about like the like Twitter is not real life thing, yeah. like think political journalists need to get out of the bubble. It's like you can talk to like 
your grandma or like your mom or your friends. And tell me, I mean, tell me about her politics. It was just a really interesting note to like finish out. your. Thank you. Yeah, I've always um, been completely confused by my mother politically um, (laughs) because uh, she doesn't vote consistently ever. I mean, she voted for Bush. She voted for Hillary Clinton. Then she decides to vote for Donald Trump. And But this is what a normal voter is like. I know. A lot of well, normal voters are like this. They don't have clean cut issues. No. They vote in some elections, not other elections. Sometimes they forget to vote. Sometimes they show up. Sometimes they vote for Republicans, Democrats. They're definitely yeah. not single issue voters and their priorities shift. Yes. So like, for example, when she voted for Trump again, she said, I was really surprised to see that my 401k wasn't suffering despite the pandemic. She was mm. like, I was surprised that I wasn't financially hurting as much as I thought I would be. And Mm -hmm. that she credited Trump with that. Now, like, did she hate the kids in cages and like the way that he acted? Of course. She said after January 6th, I'll never vote for him again. But she also doesn't want to vote for Biden. So like, explain that. I was raised in what is Mikey Cheryl's district now. It used to be Republican. She's another frontline 2018 Democrat. Totally. Moderate, like not a squad person at all. To- yeah, she's like former Marine or something like that. Then- No, helicopter pilot. Helicopter, she was a helicopter pilot. pilot. Yeah, so she yeah, came in that suburban wave in 2018. Uh, like it was kind of a backlash to Trump. Then my parents moved to Malianowski's district, which is another one. He's up for re-election, a really tight race. He came in in reaction to Trump. And so like, I've sort of kind of always been around these like kind of Republican leaning people, but they're also not Trumpers and they really care about pocketbook issues. I think maybe it's because New Jersey is such an expensive place to live and the taxes are so high that they really vote based on pocketbook issues. You know, now she lives in North Carolina in McHenry's district. He's basically like a Trumpy guy, or at least he became one. And she was like, I'll, I'll be paying attention to what he says on abortion. And I was like, she just wants the status quo. We know quo. what he's going to say. <laughs> I was like, mom, he thinks it's great. I mean, he thinks the ban is great. And it's like, you know, they just moved to North Carolina. So I'll cut her some slack on that one. But it's just not going to be the first issue, even though she knows she remembers what it was like when women had to get illegal abortions and it was dangerous and it wasn't always sanitary and like, it's upsetting, but like, ultimately she's like, am I going to be able to go on vacation this summer? There's the, the bills are so high. You've got, you know, I don't know. They do say that women over 50 are a huge voting block that no one really quite understands, but have such an impact on so many races and so and in elections. Over 50 black ladies decide democratic primaries over 50 white ladies, I would say, and white men in the suburbs decide general elections. Interesting. That is my observation. You know, the swing voters, like the people in, in outside of Charlotte, where your mom is, outside of Philly, outside of Milwaukee, they voted for Trump right. in 2016. And then they voted for Biden in 2020. And bada bing, bada boom, there's your president. Yet I feel like <laughs> no one understands these people and or talks to them. Well, that's the thing. Remember like in the Trump era and like, reporters would go out and get mocked for like spending time with people in diners, like getting to the Trump voters. Like yeah. the places where you need to go understand swing voters is like a goddamn like Whole Foods parking lot in like suburban Cincinnati. Like it's not cool. Like go to like, totally. if there's a Chico's in a strip mall in <laughs> a, in like a nice suburb, Chico's. Like, that's, that's where, that's where the election's getting decided. Sorry. Um, <laughs> That's my advice. That's not like, the most quotable thing that I think we've said today. <laughs> Go to that goddamn Chico's and find out how everyone's voting. Well, if you listen to the very end of this podcast, that's my advice for political reporters. Um, all right, Tara, enjoy wherever you are in New York. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.